word that your pastor John says is a good word to set it up for you guys. That's right. Thank you, James. Hey, it's great to be back. I miss you guys. Been really busy at a lot of other um, situations, mainly at Holy Cross Lutheran. I want to tell you a little bit what's going on there, but a couple things, something else too, I want you to be aware of. You guys can go ahead if you guys want to, go ahead if you want to. <laughs> we have an incredible opportunity called a state tuition organization in the state of Arizona. Rather than paying money for state taxes, you can give it towards private and um, Christian schools as well as preschools now. And so we're partnering with Arizona Tuition Connection, uh, an STO that actually I know the owner of this um, particular one, and he's raised millions of dollars to help students around the state. And it's a great opportunity for, we have students actually in our, our own church here that go to Christian school. In fact, there's some right here, right? You guys have, was it three or four? You have three in school, and, and it's really expensive. It's a chance for us to help these families, you know, to cover the tuition for their children. In addition to, for the preschool, it's a whole separate thing. So if you are a married couple, you can give up to $2,200 towards the kindergarten through 12th grade aspect of this, and another $800 um, towards preschool. And it's a great way for us also to allow for more students to attend our preschool, which is a very important ministry, you know, for our church. So there's two different brochures out there when you leave church today. Take one of each, one for the preschool, one for the day school. If you still have a tax liability for 2019, if you've not filed your taxes, you can still do it for the year 2019. But also, you can start also for the year 2020. So great opportunity. Now, in the last um, couple months in particular, I've been focusing a lot at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. And it's a partnership church that we have. And I want to tell you what's happening there. I known the pastor for a while. I was coaching him. I realized, you know, probably a year ago that he was struggling and with some health issues and some memory issues. And so I've been working with him, working with the church, and the church has been kind of declining probably within two years of closing its doors. And what has happened in the last couple of months is we've helped to transition um, this pastor to retirement, and he's a wonderful man. He's still going to stay there as a retired pastor and still be involved in various ways. But basically at this point, I'm leading the church. I guess we are because we're doing this together. And the church is starting to already see growth in worship attendance. It's seeing a lot of growth in Bible study attendance. And our goal by the end of this year is this free fall financial decline they've had is going to end. Um, what's been keeping them going is they sold property about 10 years ago for $1.2 million, and now it's down to about a quarter million left. And that's what they've been living on. And so we're trying to get preserve some of that capital and, and try to get everything set good there. And, and so please keep that church in prayer. They're really thankful because they realize the partnership um, with St. Mark. And so thank you for your support. Some of you have gone and checked out worship. In fact, if you have a Sunday where you can't attend worship, they have a Saturday service over there at 5 o'clock on Saturdays. They also have, we're going to have midweek services for Lent at 10.30 a.m. for the next five Wednesdays as well. Um, on March 28th, we're going to be having a work day over there. And so we're inviting the people of Holy Cross, also the people of St. Mark to help with this. It'll take place from 8 o'clock in the morning until noon. We're also doing a... Um, looking to start a missions plant at North Valley Christian Academy. And last Wednesday, I had the privilege of doing chapel there for their preschool through high school. They normally have three separate chapels, but for Ash Wednesday, they had them all together. So I got to see all the kids and a lot of their families, and what an amazing group of people. 
And they're excited about the fact that we are going to be starting a church on that campus. It's in a growing area. The potential there is just incredible. And so that's a whole other opportunity. We're also looking at doing house churches and nursing home ministry. In addition to that, we're going to be starting an online church this summer. And so there's three different Tuesday meetings each month. The first Tuesday of the month for those interested in learning more about North Valley Christian Academy. The third Tuesday for those that want to learn ways to help out with Holy Cross. And the fourth Tuesday, ways to do um, the house church ministry, but also the nursing home ministry. They all start at 6.30. So different opportunities to see what's going on, but God is moving in really powerful ways. Another thing that's really exciting, too, is we have three young men in their 20s who are feeling that God is leading them into pastoral ministry. That's two from this church, one from Holy Cross. In fact, today, um, as I preached here, the gentleman, this young guy from Holy Cross, preached his first sermon over there. So God is raising people up, and it's really exciting to see what he is doing. So keep this whole process in your prayers. We are in John chapter 13, and I want to do review. So I love the Bible Project. I'm a big fan of the Bible Project. And so we're going to take a look at a summary of where we've been so far. It's going to take us up through um, chapter 12 of John from the Bible Project. Please watch the screen. The Gospel according to John. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and we learn at the end of the book that it comes from one of Jesus' closest followers called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he appears many times in the story itself, and there's some debate about whether it's John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, or a different John who lived in Jerusalem and was known in the later church as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, the book embodies his eyewitness testimony, and it's been brilliantly designed with a clear purpose that he states near the end. John says, the story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus you read about in this book is alive and real and that he can change your life forever. The book's design is really cool. Its first half opens with an introductory poem and a short story that's followed by then a big block of stories about Jesus performing miraculous signs that generate increasing controversy. And it all culminates in his greatest sign, the raising of Lazarus, which creates the greatest controversy as Israel's leaders decide to kill Jesus. And that launches into the book's second half. These chapters focus on Jesus' final night and last words to his disciples, which are followed by his arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. The book concludes with an epilogue. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half. So the book opens with a two-part introduction. First, a poem that begins, in the beginning, was the Word, an obvious allusion to Genesis 1, when God created everything with his Word. Now, a person's words, they're distinct from that person, but they're also the embodiment of that person's mind and will. And so John says that God's Word was with God, that is distinct. And yet the word was God, that is divine. And as we ponder this claim, we hear later in the poem that this divine word became human in Jesus. Then John goes on to draw from the stories of Exodus, saying that Jesus was God's tabernacle in our midst. The glorious divine presence that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant became a human in Jesus. Which leads to his last claim, that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Son who has become human to reveal the Father to us. 
Now, as we consider these mind-bending claims, we then start to hear a story about how John the Baptist first met Jesus and then led other people to meet him and become his disciples. And one by one, as people encounter Jesus, they say out loud who they think he is. And in this one chapter, Jesus is given seven titles. Now, these titles prepare us for John's love of sevens in designing the book, but altogether they also make a claim that this fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king, he's the teacher of Israel, and he's the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. Now that's a big claim to make about someone, and John will now go on to support it through the stories in chapters 2 through 12. They all have the same basic pattern. Jesus will perform a sign or make a claim about himself, and that will result in misunderstanding or controversy. And so in the end of each story, people are forced to make a choice about who they think Jesus is. The first section shows Jesus encountering four classic Jewish institutions, and in each case, Jesus shows that he is the reality to which that institution pointed. So Jesus is at a wedding party, and the wine runs out, and Jesus then turns these huge jugs of water, like 120 gallons total, into the best wine ever. And the head waiter says to the groom, you've saved the best wine for last, which is, of course, true. But John also calls this miracle Jesus's first sign. In other words, it's a symbol that reveals something about Jesus. So just as Isaiah said that the messianic kingdom would be like this huge party with lots of good wine, so this first miraculous sign reveals the generosity of Jesus's kingdom. Next, Jesus goes to the Jerusalem temple, the place where heaven and earth were supposed to come together and God would meet with his people. And Jesus asserts his authority over it, running out all the money exchangers, stopping the sacrificial offerings. And when the temple leaders threaten him, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is claiming that his coming sacrificial death is where heaven and earth will truly meet together. His body that will be killed is the reality to which the temple building points. Then Jesus has this all-night conversation with a rabbi named Nicodemus who thinks that Jesus is just like him, another rabbi and teacher for Israel. But Jesus says that Israel needs much more than just another teacher with new information. Israel needs a new heart and a new life. Or in his words, no one can experience God's kingdom without being born again. Jesus believes that humans are caught in a web of selfishness and sin that leads to death. But he also knows that God loves this world. And so he's here to offer people a new birth, a new chance at life. From here, Jesus travels north and he ends up at a sacred well in a conversation with a Samaritan, that is a non-Jewish woman. And they start talking about water, which Jesus turns into a metaphor for himself. He says he's here to bring living water that can become a source of eternal life. Now in John, this term refers to a new quality of life, one that's infused with God's eternal love, and it's a life that can begin now and last on into the future. After this, John has designed another collection of stories that took place during four Jewish sacred days or feasts. And again, Jesus uses the images related to the feasts to make claims about himself. So Jesus first heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, which starts a controversy with the Jewish leaders about working on the day of rest. And Jesus says it's his father who's working on the Sabbath, and so is he. And they catch his meaning, that he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God, and so they want to kill him. 
The next story takes place during Passover, the feast that retold the Exodus story with the symbolic meal of the lamb and bread and wine. And Jesus miraculously provides food for a crowd of thousands, which results in people asking him for more bread. And then Jesus goes on to claim that he is the true bread, and if they eat him, they will discover eternal life. And this offends many people who stop following him. After this is a block of stories set in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, which retold the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings as God guided them with the pillar of cloud and fire and provided them water in the desert. And Jesus gets up in the temple courts and he shouts, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And then later he says, I am the light of the world. He's claiming to be the illuminating presence of God and the life-saving gift of God to his people. And some people believe and follow him, but others are offended and still others try to kill him for these exalted claims. The final feast story is during Hanukkah, which means rededication. It's about how Judah Maccabee cleared the temple of idols and set it apart as holy once more. And Jesus goes into the temple area and says that he is the one whom God has set apart as the Holy One, and that he is the true temple where God's presence dwells. And he also says, I and the Father are one. This makes the Jerusalem leaders so angry, they set in motion a plan to kill Jesus, and so he retreats from the city. Now, all these conflicts, they culminate in one last miraculous sign. Jesus hears that his dear friend Lazarus is sick, but his family lives near Jerusalem, which is now a death trap for Jesus. Now, Jesus could stay away and he would save his own life, but he loves Lazarus. So once he hears that Lazarus has died, he goes to raise him from the dead and he calls him to life out of his tomb, knowing that it will cost him his own life. And the news of this amazing sign, it spreads quickly, of course, and just as Jesus knew it happened, the Jerusalem leaders hear about it and begin conspiring to murder him. And so he rides into Jerusalem as Israel's king, who's rejected by its leaders. So the first half of John draws to a close with this story about Jesus laying down his life as an act of love for his friend. And this, of course, is also a sign pointing forward to the cross, which we'll explore more in the next video. But for now, that's the first half of the Gospel of John. Let's pray. Lord God, open up our hearts and our minds to hear and understand and live out your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on chapter 13, verse 21, and if you have a Bible, you can feel free to turn to that, or it can be followed along on the screen. And you just saw a glimpse of the Bible Project. Maybe some of you have seen this before, but I am a huge fan of the stuff they have on that um, website. We, there's a link on our own personal website to, to it, or you just, it's thebibleproject.com. A lot of great information. I'll take you through the scriptures. So verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So here we have Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. But he has emotions like us. He's troubled. Okay, there's a, a number of things probably troubling him right now, but one is, one of his own, is turning against him, but he knew about this all along. But he loves this person who's turning against him. He also knows what's going to happen to him before it happens. But in addition, knowing what's going to happen before it happens, what's going to happen to him the next day? 
he's going to die. This is the Passover meal. This is Monday, Thursday. The next day, he's going to die the most painful, excruciating death ever invented by mankind. And so even in his human flesh, he knows what's coming. In fact, there's a part in the, one of the Gospels talks about that he actually sweat blood, which is a, a true medical condition caused by extreme stress of the body. And so he's troubled because he sees what's going to happen here. And we read on. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now that's interesting. So they've been together 24-7 for now going on three years. And somehow Judas was able to stay out of the radar of the other 11. They have no idea that he's the one that's going to betray him. The only one who knows is who? Jesus. Okay, you can hide things from other people. But one thing is definitely for sure. You can never hide things from who? From God. He sees right through us. And so they're unaware as to who it is. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? I want to stop here for a second. We're so used to our style of eating. Okay, you sit around a table, right? You all got chairs and kind of sit around a table. That's not the way it was back then. It was kind of like a, they were on the floor. They were reclining on the floor. And it was like a, a U-shaped type of thing, kind of low, as, you know, a, kind of more a ground level almost. And they would be laying on their left elbow and eating and reclining and eating with their right, okay? And so the one who Jesus loved, who I am 100% convinced is John, the, the, the writer of this gospel, because he's one of the disciples and he always, I think he truly feels he's the one that Jesus loves the most, and he, he's on Jesus' right side, reclining next to Jesus, and so he's very close to ask him, who is it? So Peter may be on the other side of John, and Peter's saying to John, ask Jesus who it is, okay? Now what's interesting, the way it's set up is a person on the left side of the main um, person, that's the seat of honor. I'm pretty sure we get an idea who's sitting in the seat of honor, which is kind of surprising. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so obviously this person is right next to Jesus. So we're going to see even more indications to move along here that Judas is on his left side, which is the seat of honor, which is very interesting. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he put Judas in the seat of honor? You know, he's given Judas every opportunity to do what? To make the right choice. When it comes right down to it, we have free choice. He didn't have to go that route. But yet, it seemed that was a destiny. Even Judas himself could not escape what he was to do. And sometimes it's kind of hard to understand how these things work. But it seems like Jesus is trying awfully hard to get Judas to change his mind, by even have him in the seat of honor. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Catch that? Satan entered into Judas. By the way, 
Is Satan in more than one place at one time? No. He's a fallen angel. He's only in one place at one time. He does his bidding through his demons, and the demons are all over the place, but he's limited. Okay, Jesus is omnipresent. Satan is in one place at one time. He's taking this one on himself, okay? All the big projects, Satan will not delegate those ones. He wants this one. He wants to see Jesus be killed. And so he enters into Judas. We read on. What are you going to do? Or what you're going to do, do quickly, Jesus said to him. And so Jesus, this another indication, he's right next to Judas. Because it's not like broadcasting across the table. Okay, he gave him the morsel, and he turns up and says, do what you need to do. Okay? Whatever you're going to do, do it now. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went up, went out, and it was night. Who was in charge of the money for the disciples? Judas. Interesting. Matthew was what? Tax collector. He was good with money, right? They probably didn't trust the tax collector, so they weren't going to let Matthew handle the money. So Judas was the one who handled the money. And it seems that as time went by, that Judas began to love money more than who? Than Jesus. And what's really hard for me to understand is imagine what Judas experienced following Jesus. All these amazing miracles, all these incredible things that Jesus did. Raising, he just got done seeing Lazarus come to life. But yet he's still blinded. He's still hanging on to worldly stuff. And he goes this direction to ultimately betray Jesus. And something also very interesting, that they had funds to help support their ministry, okay? But even with the funds they had to support their ministry, they still took a portion and gave it to who? To the poor, Okay? They helped other people. They didn't keep it all for themselves. It even, you know, it's almost like a traveling church, but they were still supporting mission work. Even we see this model that Jesus shows to all churches. Verse 31. I'm sorry, the question here. The disciple not hear what he said in verse 26. Strange they missed this. So in verse 26. I think, you know, they, it's indication, this commentaries I read, is that he probably said it, you know, somewhat soft, not really loud, but some of the disciples might have heard, overheard what was said there, but they still don't get it. It's still a flyby. They're just thinking, ah, he's just going to, he's leaving to go and take care of um, some of the poor people and, and maybe take some of the money to buy something else for the meal. They're not sure exactly what Judas is going to do. And so at this point, they're still clueless about what Judas is going to do, but Jesus is fully aware of what's happening. Let's go on to the next one. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify, be, will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now this one's very interesting. It's almost like a circle. Okay, the Son of Man, first of all, it talks about, you know, that's 
God in human form. He's got human flesh. And how is Jesus going to glorify himself? Number one, he's going to die. He's going to die on the cross, which seems a strange way to glorify. The Son of Man's going to die on the cross, but God is in Jesus, and God is glorified in Jesus, and in Jesus, God is also glorifying himself, and then in himself, and, and glorify him at once. It's like a full circle as far as Father and Jesus all together working in the situation. You know, it's really sometimes hard to understand the Trinity. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. But here we see that God the Father is truly involved even in all this activity of the death and resurrection of Jesus as he is working even within Jesus. He cannot separate Jesus from God the Father. More questions. If Satan didn't enter Judas until this point, why does the author refer to Judas so negatively in chapter 12? If Judas was always a crook, why does it matter if Satan entered him or not? Good point. I think that obviously, even if we're tempted by evil, if we make mistakes, whose fault is it? It's our own fault. Obviously, Judas was going on a wrong path. But once somebody becomes demon-possessed, it takes everything to even a higher level of viciousness. Okay? And so, yeah, I mean, obviously Judas was making bad choices, but now with, you know, when a person is possessed, it's really a, a pretty wild thing. And, you know, I've experienced a situation like this. I think I've talked about it before, and there's a person in the, the room here that experienced it as well, where there was a person that was demon-possessed, and just a, a little gal, and, this, this, and she was not, she could have been more than, what, maybe 100 pounds. She was a really small gal, and she started, you know, just con the, her voice changed. I mean, just the, the, the words coming out, the voice was way beyond what she humanly could have done herself, and her strength got superhuman. And, and she, I was sitting in the back as an observer, and she picked up a pen from the front of the room and just, went, and just flew right across the room and went right in the wall. I mean, just, it was just like superhuman strength. And it was really um, mind-boggling to see this. And, and so it does happen. But what's interesting, I don't think it happens as much in our country as it does in other countries. Because if Satan manifests himself in our country, it only proves what? That he exists, okay? I think his biggest ploy in our country is to be undercover. Whereas in other countries, like in Africa, and I've talked to missionaries I've known there, that they see all kinds of demon possession over there because over there, the strong God wins, and so Satan is much more avert in other parts of the world. He's always avert, but in very sneaky and crafty ways. And here he's working through Judas to get to Jesus. Okay, next section. Little children, yet a little time, a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's telling them what? Where's he going? He's going to be rising. Okay? He's going to be ascending up to heaven. There's a short time here. And he kind of said this before, earlier in John. They didn't get it then, and even now, it's a flyby. They're not understanding what he's talking about. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here is a culmination of Jesus' teaching to his disciples. A disciple is someone who what? Loves. And the word here is agape. Loves unconditionally. A disciple is someone who makes that choice to put God and others even before themselves. A disciple is someone who loves who? Every single person. And for any congregation, our ability to change the world is in direct proportion to how much we love. Okay? And it starts with God. Okay? God is love. And God loves us. And when we realize that, we realize that God loves me, we can learn to love God. As we learn to love God and realize He loves us, we learn to love ourselves. And as we learn to love ourselves more and more, we learn to love others. It's like a cross. First, there is a vertical connection between ourselves and God, and this has to all get aligned. Okay? God loves me. I love God. I've learned to love myself in Christ, and now I can love others. Because if you don't love yourself, you can never love who? Anybody else? No, as you go through life, as people treat you really bad, our natural inclination is to do what? Get upset with them. Here's a whole nother approach. Rather than get upset with them, it's like, you know what, I feel bad. Because what they're really doing is reflecting to you how they feel about who? Themselves. Okay? If they don't love themselves, they have a hard time loving anybody else. And that's the key. The more that we grow in this relationship with Jesus, the more that love fills us, the more it's going to pour out, and the more we're going to be outward bound as far as being disciples. A disciple is someone who goes. And it's all based upon love. What is the purpose of Jesus? To love his Father and to love people. Okay? What is my purpose? I've got a, my own personal purpose, to love God and love others. What's my vision? To help make disciples around this world. How's that going to be done? Baptize, teach, go. That's how I look at it. The very words of Jesus, in fact, the same words are tied into our vision and mission that we have as a congregation. And so it's so important to realize that the underlying thing that should be moving us and, and guiding us is God's perfect love. And what does that love look like? It's not a feeling, folks. It's a choice. And we make the choice. Yeah, there's feelings attached to the choices we make. But so often, people are always, I want someone to love me. Okay? I want to be loved. That's a natural inclination. And, but through God, there's plenty of love to go around forever. If it's only on a human scale, the love runs out. So that's why it's so important for us to be in the Word, to keep growing in the Word, and, and to understand, too, and I've, I'm a, I like to pound this, you know, over and over again, the Ten Commandments are important. Okay, they're so important. What does love look like? Love is putting God before anything else. He's number one in all things. Love is honoring God with what I say and how I live my life. Love is worshiping like we are right now, but worshiping God even all week long until we get back together next week. 
Love is respecting my parents and respecting people in authority. Love is respecting everyone's life at all stages of life. Love is using sex in the way that God intended for it to be used. Love is respecting people's property. Love is not lying and raising people up and not putting people down. Love is being thankful for what God has blessed us with and realizing we are blessed to be a blessing. That's what love is. And it's a discipline. The word disciple comes from the word what? Discipline. It takes work. And we're living in the three-minute workout era, okay? Everything's got to be fast. Everything's got to be quick. It just doesn't work that way when it comes to discipleship. It takes work. It takes dedication. It takes you in your daily planning to put in the time that you're going to be spending in prayer, Bible study, serving, to be intentional in how we live our lives, that no matter what we do, work, school, sports, no matter what it is, we're doing it for the glory of who? For the glory of God. And so love is a key. That's a choice that Jesus wants us to make. We're going to stop there for today. And let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, help us to grow in your love. Help us to realize love comes from you. And love flows to us. And as we learn to love you, we learn to love ourselves. And as that love keeps growing, it flows out to the people around us. Let that love keep growing through each of us in this church. And let that love pour out into Phoenix and to the ends of the earth even more, Lord. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the great things that are happening. Lord, help us to grow as your disciples, to do your bidding, to be disciplined, to push you first in all aspects of our lives. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.